Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 11 as we cover the next part in this uh, glorious book. If, if, you've, if you've been walking with us through uh, Romans 9 and 10 and uh, stuck with us as we've inched our way through Romans 11 and you've been like, man, this is some hard stuff and I'm wrestling with this and I don't know how much more of this I can take, hang in there. Because we're almost to Romans 12, and when we get to Romans 12, Paul is going to say, now because of this, now this is how you should live. So what we've been covering from Romans 1 through Romans 11 is desperately important because we can't do the practical without the doctrine. The doctrine gives fuel for the practical. And so I'm grateful that you have stuck with us through some challenging passages, and this morning's is no different. Last week... We were in verses 11 through 15, and we dealt with the hard truth of God's hardening of ethnic Israel, that he gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear. And part of why God did this, part of why he gave them this hardening is so that he would use this as an opportunity to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we're grateful for that. But we also learned in that passage that this hardening that God gave to ethnic Israel was a temporary hardening. It was a partial hardening because one day it would be lifted. And we pointed to verses 25 and 26 where he talks about how this partial hardening will be lifted one day and all of Israel would be saved. That all of ethnic Israel at some point in the future, at least according to my interpretation of what this says, will be saved at that point in time. And so this morning, we want to look at the next passage here, verses 16 through 22, where Paul now gives us an analogy to grab a hold of and seek to explain this a bit further. So what I want to do this morning is read through this and seek to understand this analogy and the metaphor that he uses here, but then seek to understand and unpack the warning that is embedded in here, because that's really the purpose here. The purpose is not just to give us an analogy, but he embeds in this analogy, in this metaphor, a very serious warning that we are to heed as we walk with Christ in our lives today. So follow along as, uh, as I read. Our text for this morning is 16 through 22, but by way of context, I want to back up to what we read last week and start with verse 11. And read down through verse 22. These are the words of God. Paul says in verse 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles... How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And then our transition in verse 16 to this morning's passage. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. 
severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your saints who have gathered here this morning to open your word and seek to be instructed by it. But Lord, we don't, we don't just want to have a better understanding of what your word says. We, we want to be changed by it. And so we come before you humbly asking, Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit to interpret and understand, but also to apply this truth to our lives. God, so that it would sink to that place in us that is transformed by your grace, so that we look more like your son, Jesus, maybe just a little bit more this morning as you change us into his likeness. And by changing us and transforming us into his likeness that we may bring glory to you with this life that you have given us as we live before the face of God on mission for the peoples of the earth. We thank you for this and pray that you would do this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 16 is where we begin this morning, and verse 16 is really a transition. It's, it's a good bookend to what we talked about last week, as well as a launching point for this analogy that he begins to give about the olive tree and this metaphor that he uses. But Paul does in verse 16 what he does in a lot of his letters. He begins to mix his metaphors, right? So we've got two metaphors in verse 16 that we've got to figure out what he's talking about. And this is what launches us into this analogy of the olive tree. So on one hand, we've got the metaphor about a lump of dough and the first fruits that come from that lump of dough. And on the other hand, we've got the analogy or the metaphor of the root and the branches, so how are we to understand these metaphors? What, what is meant by the lump of dough? What is meant by the roots and the branches? And, and, and how are we to understand the relationship between these two metaphors that he gives here? I think we can see by the, by the way in which he, he structures that verse, that sentence, it, it seems as though he puts these two metaphors back to back in order to place them in parallel with one another. It seems as though what Paul is doing here is he's presenting the metaphor of the lump of dough and then seeking to give further explanation to that by using the second metaphor of the root and the branches, which is helpful to us because the whole rest of this passage, he goes into much greater detail about this analogy of the root and the branches and the olive tree. So I want to briefly look at that second metaphor from, first of all, from kind of the 30,000-foot level, because whatever he's referring to as the root, he must also be referring to as the lump of dough in the first metaphor. And whatever the branches refer to in the second metaphor, he must also be referring to by the first fruits of the dough in the first metaphor. So what is the root? And what are the branches in this second metaphor? Well, as we read through verses 17 through 22, and actually continues into, through verse 24 that we'll go into next week. But in this passage, Paul talked about two kinds of branches. You heard that, right? There were two kinds of branches. There's the natural branch and the unnatural branch. And, and, and we can understand by way of the context here that the unnatural branches refer to ethnic Israel, whereas the unnatural branches refer to, or the wild branches refer to Gentiles. So the natural branches are the Jews, the wild branches, the unnatural branches are the Gentiles. And he, and he tells us here in this story, in this analogy, that some of the natural branches were broken off. Some of the ethnic Israelites were broken off. And he tells us, tells us in verse 20 why because of their unbelief, because of their rejection of the gospel. But then there were some wild olive branches that weren't natural to that cultivated olive tree that are grafted in, as he says. But we know that branches are not grafted into a root. They're grafted into the tree itself. So we've got three parts to this metaphor. 
On the one hand, we've got the branches. There's two kinds of branches. There's the natural branches, which are the Jews, the unnatural or wild branches, which are the Gentile believers who are grafted into that. But they're not grafted into the root. They're grafted into the tree. So the tree is the second part of this metaphor. It is that which the branches are grafted into. And from the context, we can conclude that the tree represents spiritual Israel, or what we might call in the New Testament, the church, the people of God. Those from from both ethnic Israel and from among the Gentiles, whom God has saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we've got the branches, we've got the tree, then we've got the root. So, So what is the root in this analogy? Well, the root of a tree is where the tree gets its start, right? It's, it is the beginning of the tree. It's the very start of the life of that tree. So what is the beginning of the tree of spiritual Israel? Now, there's been lots of suggestions as to what this might refer to. One of them, which is a perfectly legitimate interpretation, is that what's being referred to here as the root is Christ himself, is Jesus, that he is the root. After all, twice in the book of Revelation, in the end times, Jesus refers to himself as the root of David. And it's certainly true that the holiness of true Israel, the holiness of spiritual Israel, the church, comes from Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, who have faith in Jesus Christ, are credited with his righteousness, the holiness of Christ becomes our own righteousness and reason for justification before God. And so that's a perfectly legitimate understanding of what the root is. But I don't don't think that's what he's after here. Because think for a moment about what Paul is trying to do in this passage. Ever since the beginning of chapter 11, what's, what's he trying to do in this chapter? He's providing evidence here that God is not done with ethnic Israel that there's something he's still doing with ethnic Israel. That's his whole premise. He says in verse 1, has God rejected his people? And Paul answers his own question. No, of course he hasn't. And he gives two examples of, of why God has not rejected his people. First of all, the example of himself. Paul is a Jew, and yet he's a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ. God, in his grace, has seen fit to set his saving love on Paul. So God couldn't have rejected his people. But secondly, he sets forth the example of the remnant of ethnic Israel. That there's always been a remnant chosen by grace. And the mere existence of this remnant of ethnic Israel chosen by grace to be a part of the elect, to be a part of God's family, even now, gives rise to the rationale that God has not rejected his people. So there's this remnant chosen by grace to receive the righteousness of Jesus by faith. And then he told us that the rest, that's not the case for them. The rest were hardened. But this hardening of ethnic Israel, as we learned last week, is not permanent, at least not in a corporate sense. Now, it's permanent for individuals. So that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind in this passage. He's not talking about individual salvation. He's talking about a corporate sense of the people of God. And certainly there, are, there have been ethnic Israelites for whom this hardening was permanent. And there are ethnic Israelites today for whom this hardening from God is permanent. But in a, in a corporate sense, this hardening that he talked about in verses 11 through 15 is not permanent. He says it's a partial hardening that's, that's for a time. And, and we pointed to verses 25 and 26 that we'll look in greater detail at next week. He says there will be a time when the fullness of Gentiles has come in when all those from among the Gentiles whom God has chosen to bring to himself by faith, by grace through faith, when they all come in, then, then all Israel will be saved. And so all of ethnic Israel at some point in the future will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's whole point in this passage is that God has a purpose in everything he does. God has a purpose in everything that he does, and his purpose in hardening some of ethnic Israel was in part to bring the gospel to Gentiles, and that through bringing the gospel to Gentiles and Gentiles being adopted into this Jewish family of God, 
would cause the ethnic Israelites to become jealous, and God would use that jealousy to bring them to faith, which he will do in mass one day when they come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. So, so the context here in which we find verse 16 is Paul making this connection between what, it, what we read about in, in verses 11 through 15 as Israel's present failure, present rejection of Christ, rejection of the gospel, connecting that, Paul connecting that to Israel's future acceptance of the gospel and fullness when all of ethnic Israel at some point in the future comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And in the middle of this context, now we have verse 16, where Paul says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So because of that, I, I, I don't interpret the root to be Christ. I interpret the root in this analogy to refer to the patriarchs to refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where Israel got its beginning. This is the root of Israel. This is, this is where the promises began with God's covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is where it began for them when he covenanted with Abraham to make him into a great nation. And that through that nation, he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. See, in those promises, in that, in that covenant with Abraham, what was God doing? He was setting apart a people for himself. Which, by the way, that is the biblical definition of the word holy. To be set apart for God's special use. That's what, that's what God was doing when he made that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as he renewed that covenant throughout the ages... He was setting apart a people for his own special use. And so Paul says that now in verse 16, if the root is holy, referring to the set-apartness of the patriarchs throughout the ages, if the root is holy, then he concludes, so are the branches. Referring to the branches of ethnic Israel, that they too are set apart for God's special use. Now in part, as individual believers, uh, as individual, individual ethnic Israelites come to faith in Jesus Christ. But one day in mass, as all of Israel is one day saved by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They are set apart for God's special use. And, th- and this makes sense if that's the case. If there is this point in time in which all of ethnic Israel will come to faith in Jesus Christ, then we can trace this back to the very root of Israel, which is the patriarchs. So now we can use this to help us understand the first metaphor. If that's what the second metaphor is referring to, then as we look at this first metaphor, we can say then that this this original lump of dough from which the first fruits are offered also refers to the patriarchs. And that the first fruits that are offered from that, going forward from out of this lump of dough, that they also are referring to ethnic Israelites. So in the first metaphor, he says, hey, if the first fruits that came out of that lump of dough are holy, then that lump of dough is holy as well. And then the second metaphor, he goes backwards. And he says, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. Another reason for interpreting verse 16 in this way is because of the parallel verse to verse 16 that we'll see next week. I'll just give you a a preview of it now. And that is in verse 28 of chapter 11, where Paul says this, as regards the gospel, they, referring to ethnic Israelites, they are enemies of God for your sake. For whose sake? For the sake of Gentiles. For the sake of the elect Gentiles, whom he's going to save by grace through faith. But, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, because the patriarchs are beloved, because they've been chosen and set apart for God's special use, so are the branches that come from that root who will one day turn to Christ in faith at some point in the future, which is what we take I take verse 25 to mean. So the, what's the point of verse 16? The point of verse 16 is to serve as a transition. 
is, is to put a book in on the, on the end of what he was saying in verses 11 through 15 about how God has put this hardening on ethnic Israel so as to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And then in, in bringing salvation to the Gentiles, it's going to make the ethnic Israelites jealous, and he's going to use that jealousy to bring them to faith, now in part, but one day in whole as a corporate entity. But also, it's an introduction to this metaphor that now he unpacks in the next few verses, in verses 17 through 22. So I want us to unpack this metaphor more. And, and, and as we do, we're gonna, Paul's going to give us two things. First of all, he's going to give us an exhortation against arrogance, an exhortation against pride. And then, thankfully, gratefully, He's going to give us a a little bit, even though we're not in the practical portion of the letter yet, he's going to give us something very practical, and that is a battle plan for fighting against arrogance. I'm grateful for that, right? Because we all battle with pride. We all battle with arrogance on, on some level. And so he not only exhorts us that we shouldn't be prideful and arrogant, he gives us a battle plan for fighting against it. So let's look first at this exhortation against pride. We find it in verses 17 and 18. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So let's stop there. That's an imperative verb. That's a command in the negative. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. What branches? The branches that were cut off. Who are they? They're the ethnic Israelites who have rejected the gospel. They haven't achieved righteousness that they sought through the law because they sought it through works, not by faith. He says, do not be arrogant toward them. These wild olive shoots are, are, are us. These are Gentiles who are grafted into this Jewish olive tree. He says, don't be arrogant of them. This is what Paul mentioned in the passage that we looked at last week. The trespass, the failure, the rejection of Israel is the rejection of the gospel. The rejection of Jesus, which led to the gospel being brought to the Gentiles. And we praise God for that. And Paul now describes this very thing in terms of agriculture. He says that there were branches that were broken off natural branches that were part of that tree. They were cut off. And we're told why. They were cut off because of unbelief. And then branches that weren't natural to that tree were grafted into that tree and made part of that tree. And now these wild branches, he says, share in the nourishing root. Share in the nourishing root of that olive tree. Now they're the recipients of this life that comes from the root. The promises and the covenants to the patriarchs, as we said, are now theirs. Now they share in that. Remember, we read last week at the end of our time together, we read from the passage in Ephesians 2 where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian Gentile believers, and he says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. You were alienated from Israel. You weren't part of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so it's been reversed. So Paul says a few verses later, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. What saints? Those original branches. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So hear that. What Paul refers to in Ephesians 2 as the household of God, he refers to in Romans 11 as the olive tree. Once you weren't part of this household, he says. Once you weren't part of it, you were 
You were strangers. You were aliens. You weren't part of this household. But now, by faith in Jesus, now you are part of this household. And this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of old. Now Paul says in Romans 11, once you were not part of the cultivated olive tree, in fact, you were just a wild olive shoot, far away from the Mount of Olives where those regal cultivated olive trees that gave rise to the olives from which they got olive oil. No, you were a wild, uncultivated olive branch that didn't even produce fruit. That's what you were. You were apart from that olive tree, but now you are part of that cultivated olive tree, which is rooted in the patriarchs of old. I've mentioned this before, my belief, my understanding, that all of the unfulfilled prophecies to ethnic Israel that we find in the Old Testament find their ultimate and complete fulfillment in the church, in the spiritual Israel, in the true Israel. The descendants of Abraham by faith. So let me be very clear here. We're not talking about two, two different people of God. Okay, we're not, we're not talking about Gentile believers who inherit the promises of God in a spiritual sense and ethnic Israel, Israelite believers who inherit the promises of God in a physical sense. We're not talking about two people of God. We're talking about one people of God. The church, the elect from both Israel and from the Gentiles, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I believe that the promises that were given to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, which by the way, when we went over that in Romans 9, we talked about how, how Paul defined Israel. He said, not all who are Israel are part of Israel, right? So, so, so there's the Israel by birth, by descendant, but there's also the Israel by faith and by promise. And those promises were made to spiritual Israel. The Israel by faith descended through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that those promises find their ultimate fulfillment in the church, comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, here's the danger. Here's the danger in this that, that Paul sees and he issues a, a warning against. Here's the danger. When, when, when we come to grips with that truth, which I believe is true and right and good news for Gentiles, and ultimately, according to Romans 11, it's good news for Israelites, but when we come to, to grip that truth, there is a danger lurking. And the danger is that we can easily find ourselves falling into elitism and arrogance and pride. There's nothing special about Israel, but there's something special about me because now I'm part of the chosen. And so it's as if Paul sees that and, and warns the Gentile believers in verse 18, do not be arrogant against those branches. It's almost as if Paul had caught wind of the early rumblings of anti-Semitism among the Gentile believers in Rome. And he goes immediately on the offensive to stomp it out. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. You're just a wild olive shoot who by God's grace has been grafted in and now you share in the nourishing root of this Jewish olive tree. Don't be arrogant towards those who've been cut off. And we'll talk next week about them being grafted back in by God's grace. But he says at this point, don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful towards them. And it is an incredibly sad reality that throughout the history of the Christian church, 
there have been segments of Christianity, some extreme, some mainline, that have drifted towards this de- discrimination and hatred of the Jewish peoples. The greatest example of this is Hitler himself, who used Christianity as an excuse for the Holocaust. In an article entitled, The Holocaust, What Was Not Said, Martin Ronheimer quotes Hitler and something that he said during a meeting with a Roman Catholic bishop in 1933. He said this, The Catholic Church considered the Jews pestilent for 1,500 years and put them in ghettos because it recognized the Jews for what they were. In the epic of liberalism, the danger was no longer recognized, but I am moving back toward the time in which a 1,500-year-long tradition was implemented. I do not set race over religion, but I recognize the representatives of this race as pestilent for the state and for the church. And perhaps I am thereby doing Christianity a great service by pushing them out of schools and public functions. And parenthetically, the bishop to which Hitler said this apparently remained silent and said nothing in return. And it's Edmund Burke, I believe, who's quoted as saying, the only thing that is needed for, triumph, for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. The reality is one of the tools, and this is hard to swallow, one of the tools that the Nazis used to claim moral righteousness in their ideology was one of the most obscure works of one of our most revered fathers of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther himself. In one of his works entitled On the Jews and Their Lies, Luther writes with such venom and violence and hostility and animosity towards the Jews who had rejected Christ in his day that it would make those of us who revere so many others of his works, it would make us blush and become ashamed of him. It is disgusting and horrible what he wrote. And this is a sad but real reality for the history of the Christian church. This tendency with segments of Christianity to drift towards anti-Semitism and arrogance towards these natural branches that were broken off. And so Paul warns us in verse 18, do not become arrogant towards those branches. And this becomes a theme in Romans 11 because he says in verse 12, so do not become proud, but fear. Then he tells uh, tell us in verse 25, and we'll look at next week, lest you become wise in your own sight, or as the NIV transla- translates it, so that you do not become conceited. There is no place for arrogance in the Gentile believer. There is no place for pride in us in any way whatsoever, but certainly not against these ethnic Israelites who were broken off, these Jewish people. This is a Jewish religion with a Jewish promise and a Jewish book and a Jewish Messiah. We Gentiles, are the, we're the wild olive shoots, as he says. We're, we're, we're the unnatural ones from the uncultivated olive trees. And it is only by God's grace that we are grafted in What have we to be prideful about? What is it that we have to be arrogant about? And so let us not miss this command from Paul in verse 18. Do not become arrogant. And in verse 20, do not become prideful. Arrogance is something that we all battle with on one level or another. We all struggle with pride. We are made to live for God's glory, right? We're made to live for God's glory, but because of sin and our flesh, we want to reserve some of that glory for ourselves. And so we all battle with putting self on the throne. We all battle with arrogance and pride, and we need to fight against it. And so, thankfully, Paul gives us a battle plan for fighting against pride. 
in verses 18 through 22. This is a, it's a three-pronged battle plan, three things that Paul says we need to do in order to guard against pride and arrogance being built up in our hearts against the branches that were broken off. So the three prongs to this battle plan against pride, fighting against pride, are to remember, to believe, and to fear. Let's look at each one of those. First of all, we must remember. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. If you struggle with arrogance, as we all do, then remind yourself, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, remember that where you are, which is in Christ, is only because of the grace of God. You are where you are in Christ only because of God's grace. That's why Paul went to such great lengths in this letter and in others to explain that salvation is not of works in the least, but it is only by God's grace. It's not by how good we are. It's not by how hard we try to be good. It's not by how hard we try to fight against evil. If it was, well, then we, had legit, we would have legitimate reason to boast in at least that part of our salvation. But we don't. As it is, salvation has absolutely nothing to do with our works. It has not, absolutely nothing to do with how good we are and how hard we try. It is by grace and grace alone. And as Paul makes abundantly clear, grace nullifies any boasting. It, it, it nullifies any pride or arrogance on our part. And so when we struggle with pride, if, when, not if, but when we struggle with pride and arrogance in our own hearts, we sense that welling up, then we would do well to ask ourselves, where would we be apart from the grace of God? Think about that. Where would you be apart from the grace of God? I, I mean, I, I look out at you now, and those whom I know here, I see stories. I see, I see evidences of God's grace in your life. Where would you be without the grace of God in your life? Where would I be apart from the grace of God? I, I, don't, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. When I say here, I don't just mean the pulpit. I mean... I mean, this life that God has given me and this, this godly wife and this family and this being in the good graces of God in this life, I, I certainly wouldn't be here. Where would, where would you be apart from the grace of God? I know I would not be anywhere good. It would be bad, right? Where would you be apart from the grace of God? It is incredibly humbling to consider that question, isn't it? Where would you be apart from the grace of God? By the way, pride is not limited to conceit and arrogance. Struggling with pride is not limited to what we, what we might call a superiority complex. Pride is also evident in what we might call an infer, inferiority complex. When we're concerned about what other people might think of us, when we are afraid of how they might receive us, when we don't want to look bad in front of others, that's pride too, isn't it? The fear of man. So there are lots of ways in which pride manifests itself in our lives. And one of the best ways to fight against that is to remember that we are where we are in Christ only by the grace of God. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. When we see that we are nothing apart from the grace of God, then we say, as Paul does in verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Remembering God's grace to us humbles us. and helps us see ourselves in a, in a true and sobering light, but in a right light. I think this is part of what Jesus himself was getting at in the first beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
You see, a poverty of spirit is one that doesn't hold oneself in very high regard, but has a true and right and sober view of self and sees that we are nothing apart from the grace of God. We can't be prideful and arrogant when we have that view of self. And so remember that we are only his by sovereign grace. Secondly, second way to fight against arrogance and pride in this sense is to believe, is to, is to have faith. Look at verse 20. He says, that is true. In other words, it is true that branches were broken off so that you, Gentiles, might be grafted in. That is true. And he says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So how do we stand fast? Do we stand fast by trying real hard to do the right things? No. Do we stand fast by trying real hard to not do the wrong things? No. We stand fast by faith. We stand fast by faith in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and Rescuer and King and Substitute and Atoning Sacrifice. We stand fast by faith. If we don't have faith, then we won't stand fast. If we don't grow in our faith, then we won't grow in our capacity to stand fast. We only stand fast if we trust and believe and depend on God and rely on Him in faith. Tom Schreiner says, Faith, by definition, is humble because we don't lean on self, we lean on God. And the converse is also true. When we are swimming in our pridefulness, then we're not trusting in God. We're trusting in who? Ourselves. This is one of the reasons, I think, that God sometimes brings hard things into our lives. In order, partly, to teach us to not lean ourselves and to teach us how to lean on Him in whom there is a vast and unending supply of exactly what we need in that moment. Sometimes the ability to depend on God can only be learned in the crucible of suffering. So in fighting against pride and arrogance, we, we stand fast by faith, relying on God, depending on God. Because we can't do that and remain prideful. It's just antithetical to being arrogant. Third, we can fight against pride and arrogance, Paul says, by fearing. The end of verse 20, he says, so do not become proud, but fear. So here's another imperative verb form in the Greek. It's another command to us, and the command is fear. We are to fear. That leads, now there's a couple of different kinds of fears. There's an unhealthy fear that leads to us being paralyzed to inactivity and inaction where we don't do anything. We're just paralyzed by fear. That's, that's an unhealthy kind of fear. But there is a healthy kind of fear that leads us to make wise decisions and choices and that ultimately that healthy fear protects us. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one of our sons, present company excluded, so that narrows it down for you. One of our sons earlier in his boyhood was deathly afraid of spiders, okay? I won't tell you who it is, but at this point, he's an army ranger. And obviously, he's over that now because he lives out in nature for weeks on end with all kinds of critters. But there was a point in his life when he was deathly afraid of spiders in an unhealthy way. I mean, it, was, it would freak him out. He would be paralyzed by it and couldn't go near it. Yes, this is our army ranger. But there's also a healthy fear of spiders, right? When you, when you see a black spider with that red hourglass shape on its belly, there should be a healthy fear that that elicits in us that causes us to stay away from that black widow, Right? That protects us. That keeps us safe. Another example might be that when, you know, in, in a few minutes, when we get in our cars and we leave here, we could be paralyzed by fear trying to get back out on Brazelton Highway. 
right? We could be paralyzed by fear and we'd all just stay here, never leave, and that would be weird. But there's a healthy fear of Brussels Highway, right? There's a healthy fear that causes us not to carelessly and recklessly just drive out there without looking both ways carefully. In the same way, Paul exhorts us to have a healthy fear, not a, not a paralyzing fear, not one that paralyzes us into inaction, but one that enables us to make wise decisions and choices. So what is that healthy fear that he leads us to? He describes it in verses 21 and 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now, church, there's a very real and sober warning here that we need to be very careful about not softening in any way. It's a very real warning, very sober warning, that if you don't believe, if you don't have faith in Christ, don't think that you're good with God just because you made a decision at some point or walked an aisle, or raised a hand, or marked a card, or got dunked in a baptismal. This is a very real warning. We should be careful not to soften it. Now, at the same time, I'll be very clear. We do and should affirm the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. That is a biblical doctrine. Once saved, always saved. We don't lose our salvation. True believers in Christ don't ever lose their salvation. We saw this in Romans 8. All those who are predestined are also called. All those who are called are also justified. All those who are justified are also glorified. That final part of salvation that happens when we're reunited with our king is said in the past tense as if it has already happened because it's such a sure thing. That golden chain of redemption where none is lost. Nobody is lost in the whole thing. So none is lost. Once saved, always saved. So yes, all true believers will persevere to the end, but only true believers will persevere to the end. Paul says pretenders won't. Paul says those who are playing the Christian game won't persevere to the end. Why? Because they were never in the game to begin with. They were never genuinely saved to begin with. The Apostle John writes about them in 1 John 2.19. I put it on the screen behind me. He says, they, they, speaking about these pretenders, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But they went out that it may, be, may become plain that they all are not of us. The fact that they did not continue with us was evidence that they were never part of us, John says. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 3, 14, for we have come to share in Christ. That is the blessings of salvation. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That means two things. The perseverance of the saints is both guaranteed and it is evidence of being a true believer in Christ. It's guaranteed, but it's also evidence that you are a true believer in Jesus. So with that firm conviction in hand, here again Paul's warning to the Christians in Rome and to the Christians of today. If God did not spare the natural branches that, that he cut off, because of unbelief, if he didn't spare them, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
Now, how, how can this be a warning to the church when it's impossible for true believers to fall away from the faith? Here's how. Paul knows that true believers will hear this warning and heed this warning and fear. And fear God. And fear falling away from the faith. And it won't be a paralyzing fear, but one that will cause them to repent and believe and come back to Scripture and come back to God and trust in God and rely on God's grace. But the pretenders won't heed this warning. So we are to note the kindness and severity of God. We like the kindness of God. I like the kindness of God, right? We want to continue in the kindness of God. And that's a beautiful description of the Christian life right there. Continuing in the kindness of God. That's what we're to do. But if we don't, if instead we fall away from the faith, it's a very clear warning here, you will be cut off. So let us, let us leave that warning and not soften it and just say, continue in the kindness of God, otherwise you too will be cut off. And so fear God. Fear falling away from the faith. Have, have, have a, a holy reverence out of fear, fear not continuing in the kindness of God. And this kind of fear helps us fight against pride and arrogance. When we are fearing God, then self is automatically surrendering itself to God. And we can't fear God and man at the same time. And so we're to fear God, not, not man. As Jesus puts it in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, revere him, be in awe of him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so church, let us, let us hear the exhortation from the apostle Paul here. Don't be arrogant toward the branches that have been cut off. Don't be private. There's no place for arrogance for Gentile believers who've been grafted into a Jewish vine. Don't be arrogant of them. In, in fact, fight against arrogance by first of all remembering that you are where you are in Christ only by God's sovereign grace in sovereignly setting his saving love on you. Not because of anything special about you or I, but simply because of his sovereign, unconditional, electing grace. Remember that. That helps us fight against fear, but also by continuing to grow in our faith so that we will stand fast and stand firm as we grow in faith. And lastly, we fight against arrogance by having this healthy fear of God and heeding the warning to continue in God's kindness. Let us do that, trusting that it is Jesus Christ who is in us working and causing us to be faithful, and keeping us faithful to the very end. Let's pray.